0: Turn to Luke, chapter 14. Sometimes when I I say the word Luke, I want to go all Star Wars on you. Luke. (laughs) Praise you, Jesus. One of the things that when you read the gospel that you pick up on, Jesus says a lot of things in the gospel that we don't necessarily think about him doing himself. When Jesus taught, when Jesus taught what he taught in the Gospels, he taught it not only from a heavenly or kingdom standpoint, it was also very personal for him. Because we know that Jesus came here to live a life and to model a life that we could live. So if he taught us something, that means that it was a lesson that he also had to learn, okay? And I thought about that when we talk about the issue of discipleship. And we're going to look at a passage that we have looked at before, and I hope that as we look at it, it will jump out in a different way tonight because for the last three years, four years, I guess since the prophecies that started at Pastor Bronx Church, the 2020 prophecy, so I guess that's a better way of putting it. We know that right now, we are gearing up. We are preparing. We are getting ourselves ready for the revival. It's already here, but we are getting ourselves ready for our part in the revival. For what we have to do. And I thought about that In terms of, when you think about professional football, for example, in the past, before this past season, they had four weeks of training camp, which four weeks of just going through, getting getting themselves conditioned properly, getting themselves ready to play the game, going over the playbook, understanding their assignments, understanding the person next to them, that person's assignment. And so they go through a four-week training camp so that they will know that when the game starts for real, they'll be ready. One of the things that I have noticed about professional football is that it seems as if the game does not really become interesting like it used to until about game four or five. Because by that time, the four weeks of training camp is really starting to gel for the players. Because right now, most of the teams, the starters, don't even play most of the training camp. Up until 2020, maybe 2019, there used to be six preseason games. Which means each team had an opportunity, six weeks, of going through the playbook, understanding their assignments, getting ready for the season. And then on day one of the season, everyone was ready because the starters even played during the preseason. Most of the rookies would play the first four, four and a half games, and the starters would play the last game and a half of the preseason. The games were much more what you would expect. Last year, they only had three preseason games. Last year, ladies and gentlemen, they had the most injuries of any season in NFL history. Because the players were not ready to play. The players were not ready to play. Here's my point. Until we are ready to play. We are not ready. To pick up our assignment in the revival. Until we are ready to play. And the. And. And. The only way we are going to be ready to play, we have to understand what's at stake. And we have to understand what our role is to be. That's the only way we're going to get ourselves ready. Okay? In Luke chapter 14, we're going to look at the passage about discipleship. But leading up, and and it begins with verse 25. But leading up to verse 25, let's pick it up in verse 15. And when one of them that sat at me with him with Jesus heard these things, he said unto them, blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. One way of eating bread in the kingdom of God, ladies and gentlemen, is devouring this book. Okay. Then said he unto them, a certain man made a great supper, and bade, bad many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, come for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. They all with one consent began to make excuse. That's important, ladies and gentlemen. That is important to where we are going tonight. Verse 18 again, And they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first brought unto him, I have got, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant, verse 21, came, showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in hither the poor, the maimed, and the halt, and the blind. Now, the obvious question is, why was the master angry? And we understand clearly why he was angry, In verse 18, and they all with one consent began to make excuse. Then the guy who had the piece of ground says, I pray thee, have me excused. The person who had the yoke, five yoke of oxen, I pray thee, have me excused. The person who had married a wife, he didn't say, have me excused, but it's the same thing. Have me excused. Okay? The master is upset because he. He says, the the dinner that I have prepared for you, you have no excuse for missing it. You have no excuse for missing it. Ladies and gentlemen, the revival that's coming, the revival that God needs each of us to be a participant in, we have no excuse for not being in it. We have no excuse for not being a part of that revival. Okay. In verse 22, it says, And the servant said, Lord, it is done. In other words, I have gone out into the city to bring, in the, bring the poor and the maimed, the halt and the blind. It is done as thou hast commanded me, as commanded, and yet there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. For I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. None of those men who made excuses shall taste of the supper. None of us who make excuses will be part of the revival. Will be part of the revival. Now, The excuses that the people made were legitimate excuses, were were legitimate reasons, not legitimate excuses. That's different. Understand the reason. Clearly understand the reason. But at some point, ladies and gentlemen, our reasoning cannot, should not, must not stop us from doing what God has called us to do. That has to be our point, that has to be our way of life verse twenty four again says for I say unto you that none of these men, those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper, and there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto him, if in, said unto them, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. I have a question. Has Jesus changed the subject? No, he has not changed the subject. He has not changed the subject. So many times when we, when we hear this verse read, we think that Jesus is telling us that we need to hate our family members In order to do what he has called us to do. That's not what he's saying, ladies and gentlemen. He's telling us, you don't have an excuse for not doing what I am asking you to do. I hung on that tree for you. So that you could have eternal life. You have no excuse for not doing what I am asking you to do. Okay, so when he says that if any man come to me and hate not his father, his mother, his wife, and children, and brethren, and sisters, yea, and see, oftentimes they miss the yea, yea, and his own life also. They want to focus on the mother, the sister, the the brethren, all of that, but they forget about hey, he's talking about you too. And when he says that you have to hate all of them and yourself, if you want to be my disciple, he's not saying you got to hate them. What he's saying is you just have to love them less than you love me. Because I am going to be calling you to do something that to your family and even to yourself is going to seem like you hate you are hated. But Jesus says, that's not at all what I'm saying. I am showing you. I am giving to you what is going to require of you to be a disciple. Okay? He's telling us that he has to be first in our lives. Okay? Now, I want you to take a moment to think about what that means. Okay? Okay? You have a half hour at home. Nothing's planned. okay? You can either spend that half hour with Jesus or you can spend that half hour with nothing planned watching TV. Which do you love more? Who do you hate in that situation? who see see, we, we, we want to take this and make it something that is not, but it's really a simple concept, ladies and gentlemen. When we have time to do something and we choose not to give that time to Jesus, we're hating Jesus and loving what we are deciding to spend the time on. It's, very, it's really very simple. And so Jesus is saying to us is that a disciple is always going to choose me when the opportunity is available for that to happen. Because... For example, when I'm at home and I have time, I can do one of two things. I can spend that time with well, I do one of several things, but I can spend that time with Jesus, or I can go upstairs and say, "Doris, what do you want to do? Would you like to do something?" And she would be glad to do it. But the whole point that that I have missed in doing that is, I have taken Barry. And what Barry wants to do and loved it more than spending time with Jesus. Are you following me? Okay. It's not a hard concept, ladies and gentlemen. And this really shouldn't be a surprise to any of us because Jesus talked about this on the Sermon on the Mount. Turn to Matthew chapter 6. Hold your finger here in Luke. It's a verse, you know, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. It says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Jesus in the the Sermon on the Mount has gone through different scenarios about your father knows you need this, your father knows you need that, this, and whatever. But he says, in spite of all of those things that you need, you seek first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness, and all of these things shall be added unto you. The word seek in this verse communicates something very important. Nothing else matters until we get what we're seeking. That word. Nothing else matters until we get what we are seeking. Okay? And Jesus says, this is to be our heart's desire. Okay? And then he seems to emphasize this point with the, with the word first. In the Greek, it's the word proton, and it means, and uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is going to shock you. It means first. First. That's what it means. Okay? And it's first, particularly in place, order and time. First, particularly in place, order, and time. Let me give you an example. On Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings for us who attend this church, what is first? Being here. It's first in place, Is first in time, and it's first in priority. If you're going to be a disciple. That's not popular. I work six days a week, Sunday's my only day off. And they all, with one consent, began to make excuses. Okay? For us, place... Order and time. When Sunday morning at 9.45 rolls around, this is first for us. This is priority for us. When Sunday at 5.15 rolls around, this is priority for us. This is first for us. We cannot say we are seeking the kingdom of God if that is not first for us. Going to church, ladies and gentlemen, It's one of those things Jesus says, well, this is the way I look at it. If you are faithful in the small things, I will make you, I will put you over greater things. Coming to church is a small thing, yet it is critically important to the kingdom of God. Okay? And here in Matthew, the word first, by the way it is used, also communicates Dignity and importance. Dignity and importance. This is going to sound so far-fetched that you may not be able to wrap your mind around it, but for the person who wants to be Jesus' disciple, coming to church is as important, or if more important, than receiving an invitation from the president to sit at his table. If the president sent you an invitation and said, I'm having breakfast at such and such place. It starts at nine o'clock and we'll probably be done by 1130 or 12. Can you go and be a disciple? It's a tough one, ladies and gentlemen. It's a tough one. It's a tough one. What is first? What is the priority for you? I know that that's a far out an example, and I understand that. But I wanted it to be far out so that you can see that the things that are less far out have the same importance. Okay? I like the way the Amplified Bible handles Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. It says, But seek, aim at, strive after First of all, his kingdom and his righteousness, his way of doing and being right. And then all these things taken together will be given you besides. So we have to prioritize the kingdom in our lives, just like Jesus had to prioritize the kingdom in his life. Remember in, I think it's also in Luke chapter 8. Remember when Jesus' family came to him? And they wanted to speak to him, but they couldn't get to him because he was teaching and there was a lot of people all around. Okay? You can look at that situation in one or two ways. Jesus is saying that me being with the people is more important than me being with my family. Or you can look at it as Jesus saying, this is what I need to do for the kingdom of heaven. That is always his choice, what he needed to do. For the kingdom of heaven. You remember Jesus said that he was, remember when he was 12 years old, he said that he was doing, he was about his father's business. 12 years old in the temple, astonishing the doctors with questions and answers. And then at 12 years old, when his parents saw him, he said, you should have known I would be here because I had to be about my father's business. Ladies and gentlemen, in this day and time, in this day and hour, our Father's business is revival. That's what we need to be about in this day and time. And Jesus said, and, and you don't have to turn that I'm going to read. this John chapter 5, verse 30, a verse we're very familiar with. I can of mine own self do nothing as I hear I judge. Why? Because I am about my Father's business. And my judgment is just because I see not mine own. Will, but the will of my Father. So, what Jesus is teaching us in Luke chapter 14 is using natural examples of helping us understand the importance of being disciples and what it's going to take for us to be disciples. And this example doesn't stop here with verse 26. Let's pick it up in verse 27. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What is your cross? Obedience. Doing exactly what Jesus tells you to do. That's your cross, ladies and gentlemen. It's not your calling. It's being obedient. That's the cross. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth down, sit not down first, and counteth the cost, whether he has sufficient to, bit, to finish it. So he's saying that, thinking about being a disciple, which of you, you're sitting down, you're going to build a tower, are going to just start building it without determining whether or not you can do it? He says no one would do that. You You build a tower with your eyes wide open, you know exactly what you're getting into when you are building that tower. Okay? And Jesus says, if we're going to be his disciples... The wise thing to do is determine, first and foremost, whether or not, now listen to me ladies and gentlemen, whether or not we're going to finish what we start. We have to decide up front whether or not we're going to finish what we start. Because once we make that decision, the enemy of the soul is going to throw so many things at us that... He is going to do his best to get us to abort our mission. So Jesus says, you need to determine whether or not you're going to finish what you start. Jesus knew that his disciples would be treated the same way he would be treated. And not only by those who didn't know his father, but by those who supposedly knew his father. So he's asking us, are you ready to truly travel that road? That path and ladies and gentlemen, if you if you choose not to go that route, you'll still go to heaven you'll, you'll still see the Father face to face, you'll still see, still see Jesus face to face, but you won't have part in the revival and that's important. He needs us to have part in the revival. Jesus continues. In verse, let me see, let me read verse 29, verse 28 again. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first, counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to build, finish it. Lest happily, after he has laid the foundation, and is not able to finish it, all that behold, it began to mock him, saying, The man began to build, and was not able to finish. Verse 31. Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first, and consulted whether he is able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand, or else while the other yet a great while the other is yet a great white way off he sendeth an ambassador and desires conditions of peace so Jesus says that just like building a house, what king is going to just go to war knowing? He has less than the enemy and think he's going to win. He's going to weigh the cost. In these examples, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is being very specific with us. He's letting us know that when we weigh the cost of being a disciple, when we choose to step out on that path of being a disciple, the world is going to be against you. That's what these examples are talking about. The world is going to be against you. So he's getting us ready. He's getting our minds focused on, are you ready to be my disciple? Okay? One of the things that I've thought about when Jesus talked about the king going to war, we know that we are kings and priests. According to Revelation chapter one, verse six. We understand that. The king that we have to go against the most is our flesh and our emotions. That that's our battle. That is our battle. Because until we conquer that king, no other no other king matters. No other king matters. Okay? And then Jesus ends by saying, So likewise, whosoever of you, whosoever be, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. What is what is the context that we laid before? When he says if you don't if you are not willing to forsake all that you have if you are willing to make excuses, you cannot be my disciple. You cannot be my disciple. Now, let's take a few, few minutes and look at the clock to see what counting the cost looks like. Turn to Numbers chapter 20. In Numbers chapter 20, and we're going to begin with verse 7. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take the rod, gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak unto the rock before their eyes. What was his commandment? To speak unto the rock. And it shall give forth his water, and thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock, so that thou shalt give the congregation and their beasts to drink. And Moses took the rod from before the Lord, as he had as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock, and he said unto unto them, Hear now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? Moses is ticked off. His emotions are stirred. He is angry. Remember what I just said about the king that we have to deal with first is our emotions and our flesh. And Moses lifted up his hand, and and with his rod, he spoke to the rock twice. No, he smote the rock twice. And the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beast also. Verse 12. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, Because you believed me not, because you smote the rock and you didn't speak to it, To sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation to the land I have given thee. Moses, ladies and gentlemen, he did not count the cost. He did not weigh his actions compared to what God had told him to do. And what did it cost him? Going into the promised land. Daniel chapter 3. You know Daniel is a book and Hosea that we're reading for the first 2 weeks in of the month. In Daniel chapter 3 is a record that you're very familiar with, but in the context of what we what we are looking at, I thought it was it was a great example. It's chapter 3 and we're going to read verse 12 through 18. It's about the three Hebrew boys. So Nebuchadnezzar has set up his uh statue. And everyone's supposed to bow down to it when they hear the sound of the sackbuck, psaltery, blah, 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 blah. Okay? And if you don't do it, then you will get crucified, or you'll get killed. You'd, you'd be stoned. So in verse 12, the, <laughs> the the there are there are men in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom who who are snitches. <laughs> They just look for things to go running back and tell the king. So, verse 12 says, There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not regarded thee. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and fury, commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spake. And said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now, if you be ready that at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbuck, paltry, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, you fall down and worship the image which I have made, which I have made, I, Nebuchadnezzar, have made, well, but if you worship not, ye shall be cast that same hour into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? What tickles me about that verse is when you go back and you look at verse 47 of chapter 2, it says, the king answered to Daniel and said, of a truth, it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing thou seeing thou couldst reveal the secret. He was praising God to high heaven. Now he's saying, Now who is this God that you serve that's going to be better, that's going to be greater than me, that's going to deliver you? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, verse 16, answered and said unto the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. We already know what we're going to tell you. We're not, we are, we are not going to choose our words carefully. We're not going to beat around the bush. We're not going to hem-haw. We're not going to make excuses. Verse 17. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. It sounds like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had already counted the cost and decided what they were going to do before the king came to them. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. And of course, we know how the story goes. The king throws them into the fiery furnace, heats it up seven times greater than it was before. He looks in and he says, wait a minute, did not we throw three men in there? I see four, and one looks like the son of God. And then, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are brought out of the fiery furnace, and ladies and gentlemen, this is a miracle. They didn't even smell like smoke. They didn't even smell like folk. Folk. Smoke. <laughs> but I wanted you to see, they counted the cost. They knew that by them adhering to what they, with their Jewish tradition, their Jewish teaching, that they knew it was going to cost them their lives. How many of you, ladies and gentlemen, if that was one of the things that could happen to you, would you be willing to stand on what you have been taught, on what this book says? Okay? I want to... I'm going to skip some things because we're getting close, but it's all good. You see, Jesus also had to count the cost of discipleship to his father. The cost of obeying and dying on the cross. That was was the price he paid for his discipleship to his father. And like us, he had to choose and believe the cost was worth it. Turn to John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, we read in verse... 14. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and I and I and, and am known of mine as the father knoweth me. Even so know I the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Hello, sheep. He laid his life down for us. <laughs> Verse 16, and, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring and they shall hear my voice and shall be one fold and one shepherd. Verse 17, therefore doth my father love me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Jesus had counted the cost. When the crown of thorns was forced into his skull, releasing pain and pain, that was relentless and blood that flowed freely into his eyes, instead of calling on twelve legions of angels, Jesus endured the pain. For he had already counted the cost and decided we were worth it. When the temple guards cursed him, spit in his face, pounded his body repeatedly, instead of calling twelve legions of angels, Jesus endured the pain for he had already counted the cost and decided we were worth it. With each flesh-ripping slash of the whip, more and more of his blood flowed on the ground like a cloth being slowly unrolled. Instead of calling twelve legions of angels, Jesus endured the pain, for he had already counted the cost and decided we were worth it with a nail when the nails were being driven through his hands and feet with each swing of the mallet that tore through his flesh and the pain reached a new crescendo each time instead of calling twelve legions of angels jesus endured the pain for he had already counted the cost and decided we were worth it and with his last breath he cried it is finished for the joy that was set before him. You are the joy that was set before him. He had counted the cost required for our freedom and from the sin nature and said we were worth the price. So my question to you, ladies and gentlemen, The price of revival, the price of participating in the revival, the price of going from glory to glory until we stand in the mirror and no longer see Jesus' image but see our own. Are you willing to pay the price to see that happen? Are you willing to pay the price so that those who are lost can have an opportunity to be part of a family that's going to spend an eternity with Jesus? Are you willing to pay the price? And that price, ladies and gentlemen, it starts with you spending time with Jesus. That's where it starts. If you're not spending time with Jesus, you are never going to be able to reach discipleship status. That's where it starts. It's time with him every day. It's worth it. It is worth it, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, Jesus, with the things that he went through, he saw us as being worth it. We have to see the lost, the sin-natured person being worth it too. Amen? Father God, I thank you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. We know that you have called us to be part of the revival because you know that we have the potential inside of us to be full participants, laying hands on the sick, raising the dead, causing the lame to walk, Because you can work through us to see those things happen. And I just thank you, Lord Jesus. And I'm humbled, Lord Jesus, that I can be one of those persons. So I thank you this night, Lord, for all that you have done this night. And I thank you, Lord, for the time that we had prior to the message of just being quiet and letting you work some things out in our lives. I thank you for that, Lord. Because I know that those things that you were working out in us are all for your glory. And so we just give you all the praise and all the glory. And Father, I just look forward to what you're going to do in this place on Sunday. In Jesus' name, amen.